This is an ABC podcast. Australia takes a hardline approach to non-citizens who commit crime. Upon release from prison, their visas are cancelled and they're often deported. But is Australia softening its stand? We retain Section 501, deportations, the capacity to cancel visas and remove people who pose a risk to the community. What's changed is we will have a common sense approach and bear in mind what uh, a person's ties are to Australia when assessing these cases. They are common sense changes and very, I think, encouraging developments. New Zealand Prime Minister Chris Hipkins and our PM Anthony Albanese speaking at a joint press conference in Canberra. The change they're referring to is Ministerial Directive 99. It doesn't change Section 501 of our Migration Act, but importantly, it alters how decision makers should consider appeals to reverse or overturn visa cancellations on character grounds. The majority of those deported under this section are New Zealand nationals. Joanne Cox heads the Oz Kiwi Association, which campaigns for the rights of New Zealanders in Australia. The ministerial direction is to take a more common sense approach to dealing with New Zealanders under Section 501 and take into account things like their family ties, whether they have children born in Australia, how long they have resided in Australia themselves as well as the type of sentencing and such like that would be relevant when a person's character is reviewed under Section 501. How significant do you regard this announcement of the ministerial direction? I think it's very significant. It's the first positive step uh, change in this space since that policy change was enacted in late 2014. And it really has had a, a terribly detrimental effect on New Zealanders residing in Australia. You'll probably be aware of the New Zealand Prime Minister, the former Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, referring to it as a corrosive aspect of the trans-Tasman relations. And it really has had a terrible negative consequences for a cohort of New Zealanders who have been caught up in the criminal justice system. Previously, it was a 24-month sentencing would see them eligible to have their visa revoked under Section 501, but the December 14 change saw that come down to 12 months' worth of cumulative retrospective sentencing. So smaller sentences can tally up to 12 months or more. And it also included juvenile offending, which is usually a closed book in relation to deportation and other things. And do we have any sense of how many New Zealanders have been deported from Australia to New Zealand since 2014? My understanding is there's about 2,500 to 3,000 New Zealanders in total will have been deported since the beginning of 2015. Many people, Australians, would say, well, look, if they're serious criminal offenders, if they are a threat to the community, they should, and they're not citizens, they should go back to New Zealand. Well, I would agree with that. However, the issue here is that since they've lowered the bar so much to 12 months' worth of retrospective cumulative sentencing, including suspended sentences, that bar is so low that it's sweeping up very minor offending. And we have a number of people have come to us where they've committed um, 
shoplifting, cannabis supply, very minor offending in the scheme of things. And we as an organisation, Kiwi, fully agrees and accepts that certain people should be deported because of the seriousness of their crime. So those violent offenders, sexual offenders, people who abuse children, etc., certainly should be up to have their case heard for deportation. But what's been happening with New Zealanders in particular and certainly other nationals is that they're being deported and held in immigration detention for very minor offending, much more low-level offending. And I would say three-quarters of those in detention who are New Zealand citizens are minor offenders. They might be recidivist offenders, but they're not serious offenders. I mean, they wouldn't have been sentenced for more than two years for one offence, for example, which used to be the bar, 24-month sentence would see you up for deportation. But now it's 12 months of cumulative and retrospective sentencing. So the bar is so much lower and it really is sweeping up a lot of people and they have generally been longer-term residents. They moved to Australia when they were young children. They may have come over to Australia as a school student and they've lived there for decades and a number of them are parents and some are even grandparents. So I guess there are issues around the seriousness of the offences that, that can lead to deportation, but there are also questions about the connections to Australia and how connected somebody is to Australia as opposed to how connected they are to New Zealand. Are they two separate distinct questions? They are related, but they are also um, a separate question because one of the issues that has been a factor for New Zealanders who are deported from Australia is that the length of time they've resided in Australia means they have less ties to New Zealand. And as they've resided in Australia for 20, 30 years, you can understand that their immediate family members, their grandparents, their aunts and uncles and so forth are no longer alive, let alone to have any connection with them. And their immediate family, their parents, their siblings, their own children are in Australia. So you're sending them back to a country they no longer really know and they don't have a support structure for them when they do get back to New Zealand. So the two sides of the coin are that they have strong connections and family ties to Australia, but they have very little connection and no family ties to New Zealand. And that has really had, has set them up. It's a recipe for disaster. And the recidivism rate of returned offenders, as they refer to New Zealand, is very high because you could imagine somebody with criminal convictions is, is less likely to find employment and not having those family supports or those social supports in New Zealand can see them spiralling downwards and they resort to crime. What would you say to Australians who'd say, well, look, these people are non-citizens and if we can remove them and if they do pose a threat to the community, they should go? Well, I can see how somebody says that and, and it really is quite unjust when you consider that New Zealanders reside in Australia since the 26th of February 2001 on what is effectively a temporary visa that allows them to reside indefinitely. They can live and work in Australia for as long as they want, but they don't have a pathway to citizenship. And that's what's tripped up a number of people. And there might be about 650,000 New Zealanders residing in Australia at any one time, and they're all on the same special category visa. But those who arrived after February 2001 are on a temporary visa. Those prior are effectively a permanent visa holder. So the people who arrived in the last 22 years don't have a pathway to citizenship. 
And so that leaves them vulnerable as well. They don't have access to Social Security and Centrelink. They can't access public housing. They're not eligible for women's refuge and other things that can't become a factor for people who are a lower socioeconomic demographic. And all of those things are sort of pushing them out further away from society. They, for instance, can't access student loans or tertiary study because they don't have the funds to pursue it. And young people also stop seeing the sense in actually completing high school once they realise they can't pursue their dream. And that is another factor that young people are falling out of the education system and getting into trouble and ending up in the criminal justice system. And so you have a number of young people, often Māori and Pacifica, who are 16, 17 years old and they're coming to the attention of the courts. And when they turn 18, they're being deported under the Section 116 character grounds because they've been associating with criminal people. So, so you have this deportation issue, but you also have um, what would, um, you, you say the the difficult position, or what you would argue is a very difficult position of, of people who arrived from New Zealand into Australia post the 26th of February 2001. The federal government has just made an announcement with this ministerial directive and the Section 501 visa cancellations. Do you expect any further announcements shortly, which might address some of these wider issues around the status of New Zealanders in Australia? Well, since the Labor government came into office in May of 2022, they've announced a review of the rights of New Zealanders in Australia. So they're looking at the aspects of New Zealanders' visas, what rights they have and what might need to change. And they have flagged that they are reviewing those rights and looking at providing a more fair and affordable pathway to citizenship, i.e. a pathway to permanent residence for long-term New Zealand residents of Australia. So we're quite hopeful that that review, which the results are due by Anzac Day of this year, that that review will result in better outcomes for New Zealanders so that people who want to take up citizenship in the country that they call home, being Australia, actually will have a pathway that is a fair, affordable pathway to citizenship. Just um, flipping it around, do Australians in New Zealand have similar problems? Not to the extent that New Zealanders face in Australia because under the Trans-Tasman Travel Agreement and the shared labour movement between the two countries, and Australians can arrive in New Zealand, they're effectively a permanent visa holder on arrival. That's an automatically conferred visa status. And after residing in New Zealand for five years, they can pay about 500 New Zealand dollars and become a citizen. And that's how it used to be for New Zealanders in Australia until February 26, 2001. They arrived on a special category visa. It was effectively PR as long as they met the health and character grounds. Back then it was resulting for two years, you could apply for citizenship. But that all changed in February 26, 2001. And now there's perhaps 250 to 300,000 New Zealanders residing on a temporary visa. It has no pathway to the R. Joanne Cox, Chair of Kiwi Association. Thank you. Thank you for speaking to the Law Report. Thank you for hearing me. Thank you. You're listening to The Law Report on ABC Radio National. Available anywhere, anytime via the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.
If a government minister has the responsibility to make an important and contentious decision, just how much attention do they have to pay to the issue they're considering? The federal government has sought leave to appeal a lower court ruling that the former immigration minister, Alex Hawke, rushed a visa cancellation decision in the case of US citizen Joseph Leon McQueen. His barrister is Jason Donnelly. Mr McQueen is a non-citizen that has been living in Australia for um, more than two decades. Um, He migrated from the United States of America. He has a wife here and quite a number of uh, children. And he previously was a member of the United States of America uh, military force and had spent time in the Middle East fighting with the Australians uh, against terrorists and so forth. Yes, yeah, so I understand um, he was granted permanent resident status in 1995, then returned back to the USA for, for some time, I think between 2005 and 2011, where he worked as a civilian contractor. And in that capacity, he was spending a lot of time in fly-in, fly-out stints in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. He's now based back here in Australia. That's correct. So his PR status was cancelled in late 2019. Why was that? It was cancelled under the, what has probably now been described as infamous mandatory cancellation provisions on the basis of being sentenced to a period of imprisonment of more than 12 months for settling and offering to sell supplied methamphetamine, possession of methamphetamine and possession of unlawful property. And as a result of that, because he received a period of imprisonment of more than 12 months and he was in prison at the time. His visa was cancelled in November 2019. He appeals his cancellation to the then Immigration Minister Alex Hawke. What's the argument that he uses? Effectively, he, he put forward a number of arguments. The most important argument was he needed to remain in Australia to be with his wife and his children and grandchildren. And so the point is he has very, very significant ties to the Australian community and that if he was forced to return to the United States, there would be very, very significant emotional, financial and practical hardship for his immediate family in Australia. But that argument didn't fly, did it? It's unsuccessful and he actually gets a surprise of his life because More often than not, these revocation applications, the pleas of mercy, are decided by delegates of the minister, not the minister personally. But the minister personally intervenes in his case, Mr Alex Hawke, and decides not to give him back his visa, which means as a result that he can't have the decision challenged in the independent administrative appeals tribunal process and has to consider options in in the Federal Court of Australia. But you appealed that decision by the minister, on what grounds? And and it comes down to a really unusual piece of evidence. Yes. So when I saw the documents, there was a very strange document, a very strange photo in the court book, uh, which purports to show a person sitting in the front seat of a driver, driver's seat of a vehicle with a folder on the person's lap, which includes a copy of Mr. McQueen's legal file, including the cancellation decision itself, and these strange sign he stickers pointing in the direction of cancelling his visa. That's Mr. McQueen's visa, which on one view might have suggested that the decision was made in the front seat of a motor vehicle in the driver's seat. 
So you took this case to the federal court. Why did the judge find in your favour? And on appeal, that ruling was upheld by three judges of the full federal court in December last year. And the federal government is now seeking leave to appeal that decision to the High Court of Australia. What's the crux of that earlier decision? The main ground was that the minister failed to give proper genuine realistic consideration to Mr McQueen's case. There was an actual finding made by the trial judge, Justice Colvin, that um, Mr McQueen's representations and all of the documents which were submitted in support of seeking to get back his visa were not read which is a very critical finding to make, and that it was insufficient for the minister to merely rely upon a summary of Mr McQueen's representations as prepared by one of the minister's delegates, uh, that it was only lawful in the circumstances of this case for the minister to actually read the documents which Mr McQueen submitted in support of his application to get back his visa. And so that decision was the subject of an appeal by the minister in the full court. Um, and as you just observed, the full court unanimously dismissed the minister's appeal, 3-0, and, 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 and found, consistent with the trial judge, that there was no errors with the, the trial judge's findings, and that is that the minister did not read the representations put forward by Mr McQueen. And significantly... At no point in either the proceedings at first instance before Justice Colvin or the full court of the Federal Court of Australia did the minister actually explain that bizarre, strange photo and how that photo came to be, who the photo was of and why that photo was in evidence in the court book in the Federal Court proceedings. So there is a significance of this decision that it raises very interesting issues about how deeply a minister has to consider or read everything that is put in front of him or her when they are making a decision like this? The decision's important because it demonstrates that depending on the circumstances of a case, a Minister of the Crown exercising the 501 powers needs to actually read the representations and the evidence put forward by non-citizens in support of seeking to get their visa that they cannot merely rely upon a summary of the representations prepared by someone else. It's a tricky one. I mean, is it reasonable to expect a busy minister to wade through mountains of material when, when this process can be uh, delegated or shared with someone in the minister's office or department? There's probably a couple of observations to make. The first is that if the minister decides to personally consider cancelling a person's visa or not giving them their visa back, then they should read all of the documents because the significant consequence of the minister intervening personally is that the non-citizen doesn't have a right of independent merits review of the decision before the Ministry of Appeals Tribunal, so they lose the right of merits review, which is a very important right of review for the, for the non-citizen. That's the first point. The, the second point is... Of course, the minister has hundreds of delegates in Australia that, that can make these decisions. And so if the minister is busy and doesn't have the time, then consistent with what Parliament has always intended, then these decisions can be delegated to delegates under 501 to make the decisions. And then, of course, if they're adverse to the non-citizen, give the non-citizen a right of review before the Ministry of Appeals Tribunal. But I think the most important point is that because the implications are so serious for the non-citizen, one could only expect in those circumstances that the, the minister would 
effectively do their job, and, and that is take the case seriously, read it properly, consider it deeply in a genuine and proper manner. Jason Donnelly, thank you very much for speaking to The Law Report. Great pleasure. One convicted felon who has just been released back into the community and also granted a permanent visa is 65-year-old Darko Desic. His story is extraordinary. We covered it on The Law Report about a year ago. After escaping from jail back in 1992, he lived as a fugitive for 30 years on Sydney's northern beaches before handing himself in to authorities. To explain how his client avoided deportation, I'm joined by Darko Desic's lawyer, Paul McGurr. Paul McGurr, remind listeners, who is Darko Desic? Well, Darko, as you uh, publicised last year, is a, a man who was from Yugoslavia, came out to Australia on a travelling holiday, was working here, got into a bit of strife in relation to cultivating marijuana, got sentenced to incarceration, which ended up being at Grafton Jail. At that particular time, particularly in the area he was living in, in Yugoslavia, uh, they were in the midst of a pretty nasty civil war and uh, he didn't want to be sent back after he served his sentence to that particular war because he didn't agree with it. And he broke out of Grafton Prison, which was a an effort in itself because it was pretty notorious for being pretty hard to break out of. But he actually somehow got his hands on a hacksaw and managed to break out and found himself living for almost 30 years on the northern beaches, living hand to mouth, applying his trade as a engineer slash stonemason. It's fascinating. So, so he's sentenced, I think, to, to three years and eight months prison for two counts of cultivating cannabis. This is back in 1990. In July 1992, 19 months into his sentence, he decides to escape from, from prison and, and you're saying, and, and that's always been his story, that, that um, he was not so much terrified of jail, he's terrified of going back to Yugoslavia, which was in the midst of a very, very nasty civil war. Yep. And he becomes a fugitive for 30 years. So what does he do for 30 years? How does he keep a low profile? How does he live under the radar for 30 years? He had no form of identification, no Medicare cards, no credit cards, no, you know, going back that far, no bank book. He had absolutely nothing. He walked or got public transport to and from places of work and as has been documented. No driver's licence? No, no driver's licence, nothing. It's like he didn't exist. You know, when he went into DY police station after almost 30 years to hand himself in, the young constable on the desk wasn't even born. So he said, I believe you've been looking for me. And she didn't know what he was talking about because she was born after he actually escaped from prison back in the early 90s. We're talking about operating on himself for infected teeth, pulling them out with pliers. Pretty disciplined in relation to not, not to want to come up onto the radar, but didn't commit another crime and, in fact, was very well loved by so many people. And during his incarceration, when he went back in, and he said, look, I've got to go back in and serve the remainder of my sentence. Uh, he was given in a further two months after he handed himself in. But the amount of people just from the northern beaches, you know, retired judges, doctors, he'd worked on so many of their houses and his craftsmanship was so sought after that he'd never really found himself out of work over that 30 years, except when COVID hit. Okay, then COVID hits, right? And of course, he could never apply for Centrelink assistance because he's living under the radar. There's no more cash-in-hand jobs. He can't just front up at people's houses. And that's a catalyst, isn't it, for him handing himself in? Yes. Because he, he, he's literally, he's got no options. 
That's right. And the house he was living in, they were actually doing a significant renovation. So he ended up living in the sand hills up around Avalon and living it very rough. And it just finally dawned on him, you know, work had dried up. Uh, he was struggling to get a feed. And uh, that's when he said, look, I'm going to hand myself in. And his mate said, what are you doing? You know, it's almost been 30 years. And as it turned out, the police, when he handed him or tried to hand himself in, didn't know what he was talking about. There were, it was so hard for me to even find his old records, let alone the police that originally dealt with his matter. And eventually they thought, oh, this is the man with the, that we have allegedly been looking for. And that's when uh, we went through the process of uh, him being re-sentenced to serve the remainder of his sentence, which he said, look, I've got to do. I committed the crime. He's never turned away from that. And then Her Honour Magistrate Atkinson gave him a further two months for escaping lawful custody, which to say was a good sentence would be an understatement because two months for that type of offending is a very good result. But to her credit, she saw it for what it was. And that's what brings us up to what happened on Monday. So he serves the end of his prison sentence. That leads you up to December 2022. He's, of course, not an Australian national. So he's subject to a 501 visa cancellation. He's immediately transferred to immigration detention centres awaiting deportation. And then he's released. You asked the minister to show mercy, to exercise his discretion not to extradite. And that's what was just, you know, we couldn't believe it. The person in the or house next to him has been in there for over 13 years, a person from Korea. So in this particular respect, I was certainly waiting and ready for a very, very long fight in respect to trying to get him out. And for it to happen in early February, when he was only taken to Villawood in late December, is exceptional. As I said, people have been in there for over a decade in Villawood, which is not widely known, but in a majority of the Northern Beaches residents that I've certainly spoken to wanted Dougie home and saw him as one of, one of their own and an Aussie. And part of the submissions were that this man's lived a crime-free life for over 30 years. It is interesting. He became um, known, widely known as Dougie, and I believe there was a kind of a GoFundMe page, and, and somehow he was embraced as this kind of archetypal um, Aussie, um, I don't know, a person who, who, who was a bit of a bad boy, but ultimately was not a bad person. I think there was over 15,000 people who signed a petition to ask him to stay. You know, they raised over $35,000 during COVID for him. These people on the northern beaches, there were stickers on bumper bars. And as you said, maybe it is a bit of our old convict history to like a bit of a rogue. But he is just a lovely bloke. And uh, as he said on Monday, he said, I just don't know how to thank these people. He's, he, he's, he's still in shock, you know, and wants to make the most of it. You know, he wanted to get back to work on Tuesday. And, and what's he doing? Is he back at work? He's got a job, a, full, a full-time job as a stonemason. He's got a roof over his head. He's got uh, a close-knit community up on the northern beaches. And as I said to him, you know, head down, bum up and keep going. Um, he's been given a Medicare card. Everything just moves so quickly. And whoever did make this decision is to be commended for it because it, it really is one of common sense. And as I've said all along, getting rid of this bloke would have failed the pub test. So, so to get this straight, you, you don't have a set of reasons from a decision maker in the department or from the minister. You don't know what the basis of their thinking was. No, I don't. I don't. Uh, all I can assume is, 
And uh, when someone's got 30 years of a clean record and hasn't really been a burden on Australia at all, that's a pretty good reason to let him stay. And I think, that obviously, without guessing too much, that's, that's the determination that was looked at and made. Thank you. That's uh, Paul McGurr, Sydney criminal lawyer. And that's all we have time for on The Law Report. A big thank you to producer Christina Kukolia and also to technical producer Tim Simons. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.